Hello listeners, welcome to Thansav Rose's podcast. I'm Anurag Papolo and I'm Christina Lee. This week we'll be talking about speculation, by which I mean we'll be looking at things like stocks and trading in crypto because it's been in the news so much lately. We won't be looking at how stocks work or anything, but rather why so many people seem to be interested in these things now and why do they feel the need to do it? What about the technology that allows them to do it now? So, I was particularly interested in this topic as someone who doesn't really care that much about stocks or yeah. you know like the whole GameStop thing or cryptocurrency in general i follow it very loosely just because like you said it's been in the news so much but i'm i'm much more interested in what this trend towards you know like cryptocurrency nfts all these things that are happening virtually now what yeah. that means for the economy and like everyone else who is not you know directly involved with with these yes. things you know it's also not just like i'm doing it by myself on my phone trading on robinhood but it's that hundreds of thousands of people are congregating in a forum and coordinating and it's kind of sounds like a weird phenomenon so what i wanted to know was is this new or is it not and if it's not then what was it like before you know we'll be speaking to gail rogers a professor of literature at the university of pittsburgh He has a book coming out called Speculation: A Cultural History from Aristotle to AI. So he's the perfect person to talk to. Here's Kale Rogers. Hey Dr. Kale Rogers, welcome to Thanza Roses. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So this week uh, we're going to be speaking about the history of speculation and what speculation is like now. Let's start with what is speculation and can you give some examples of very basic kinds of speculation and the need for them so the history of speculation is not at all brief i can try to make it brief but it goes all the way back to ancient times what is actually brief is the use of the word speculation in its most common form right now which is financial speculation but for the majority of human history it meant contemplation Um and so that's why we have this word that now when I've told people I was writing a book about speculation the most common question I would get is oh do you mean you know stock markets mm-hmm. and frenzies or do you mean you know thinking and that's exactly the confusion that persists and there's a reason why speculation at its core means projective thinking about the future uh when we contemplate what our futures might be like or when we contemplate bets on markets about what assets might be like in the future and that's why that term does double duty and it also does triple duty when we think about speculative fiction and there's some other uses we can talk about later yeah so that's at its core essentially what we're talking about only in the 1700s did it become a term that was used in finance and thinking about commodities, stock markets, things like that. So that's the very very rough and brief history of how it came to be what it is for us now. Right. Uh you were saying speculation, you know, is either thinking about our future or, you know, making a bet on the future. You know, apart from just as wondering about what the future might be like when it comes to markets or money or finance or things like that, like what's the need to do it? well that like an institutional level <laughs> institutional level behavioral level 
um, visceral level? There's a there's a million answers to that. Um, there's there's a human answer to that, and it goes all the way back to survival instincts. I mean, why it is that we need to mm-hmm. store food to um, be able to survive through different seasons, but it also goes back to the origins of capitalism and to be able to store money to accumulate um, accumulation societies. So there are a lot of different reasons, but one of the features of modern capitalism is the gamification of it. Um, And so that's something that speculation as we now think of it is really conducive to, mixed up with, and often associated with. When speculation uh, takes its modern form, it is, in fact, in the the 1700s, the term speculation is is almost synonymous with lotteries and gambling. Uh, And so to gamble and to speculate you could almost use the term interchangeably. What we see now when you see people talking about the GameStop traders or uh, speculating on NFTs, they speak of it as if it's a gamble, as if it's nothing more than a roll of the dice. And I know we're going to talk a little in a little bit more um, yes. about whether that's actually true or not. But the fundamental assumptions that are happening there go all the way back to some roots of speculation that go back to um, predictions about the future and how we do that, whether you were using fortune-telling devices, Mm. augury, divination, tarot cards, or whether you're trying to predict the future with data, algorithms, and other modern predictive devices. Um, There's a lot of continuity there. All right. So uh, are there like one or two interesting events from the history of speculation that will help us understand it better. You know, you have like the tulip craze and things like that. So are are there like one or two things you would want to talk about, like specifically? Sure. Yeah. So one of the major misconceptions about speculation that I, I, I try to address is the idea that it's a craze or a mania. Right. It's always happening. And then once in a while, you get a craze or mania. And that's what gets remembered or talked about. That's how, that's what we call it in retrospect. There are a lot of historians who say that the tulip craze or the, the, the tulip mania, the tulip bubble was not even a mania. Uh, it was not called that in its time. For the most part, we think that the reason it's remembered that way is because of a pretty shoddily researched history published in the 1840s um, by Claude Mackay, Extraordinary Popular Delusions, which is one of the most lasting and influential histories of speculation that we still have. It was the first one to really characterize speculation as a mania. Prior to the 1790s, uh, you almost never had speculation called a mania at all. This is a very modern uh, innovation. If you think of speculation and its roots in contemplation, well, contemplation is the farthest thing from a mania. I mean, contemplation is tranquil solitude. You're thinking plaintively about your future, right? So where does mania come from? Well, it gets tied to gambling, smuggling, playing dice in the alleys, um, this kind of seedy underworld that people thought was an addictive vice. Right. But that's very much um, an addition that came in through the side door to speculation. It's not really at the root of what of what speculation is. 
if you really think about it, let's take the the GameStop episode that happened recently. Mm-hmm. I read the articles about it. Almost every one of them called it the GameStop craze, the GameStop frenzy, the GameStop mania. And then I read the articles and it explained what happened. Traders made a thread on Reddit. To me, it sounded pretty rational. They planned out what they wanted to do. Uh, They had a plan. They executed it. They had a point to make. They used a social media platform to make it. They used um, a low-cost trading platform, Robinhood, to execute it. They executed it well. It worked. Yeah, in large numbers. Show me how this is a mania. I don't see maniacal delusions. This seems the farthest thing from a mania, in fact. Yes. You know, you could call, say, the housing bubble of the mid-2000s a mania, but people were buying houses because there were favorable interest rates and good prices on houses. Mm-hmm. Or the dot-com bubble. Well, was that a mania? No, there were some good investments to make that looked like they were going up. So I would say instead that almost every case of a speculative quote-unquote mania is instead a series of individuals making calculated gambles, which is exactly what investment is all about. And just because it took place on Reddit rather than at a upstanding brokerage house in somewhere in Manhattan doesn't make it any more crazed. I mean, to my mind, if anything was crazed, it's the episodes you read about of Lehman Brothers collapse yeah. where they're making some pretty crazed insanely leveraged bets in the middle of the night mm-hmm. that would never possibly hold up the accounts of the the collapse that happened in in 2008 and 2009 i mean there were some crazed bets that took place there that sound to me way more irrational and i think calling them manias is usually pretty unhelpful uh and instead we'd be better off to understand them for what they are and kind of plot them on, on the spectrum of a larger cultural history of investment in a broader history of gambling and divination and futuristic projection. Yeah, if if you went on the Reddit threads when this GameStop stuff was happening, you know, it was organized in the sense that there would be like a daily thread where Mm -hmm. once you're caught up with the news of the day, then you can go on that thread. And based on what has happened, you know, people would recollect the events of the previous day. And then the discussion would be like about what to do next. And this would happen like every day, right? And there were like (laughs) specific people that everybody followed for advice. And they would quote from professional investing websites and like books and stuff. So yeah, you, you would only call it a mania if you went there for the first time, saw the tone of the room, but didn't understand the fact that that's how they talk, but that's not how they think, you know? Well, there you go, right? And that maybe separates it. So. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, they know the irony in what they're doing. So they exactly. like, look like they're crazy, but they're actually not. So that's the point, right? That's very purposeful. So, so a pseudomania is actually maybe what they're up to. That's a really principled point. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it was very much an attack on the contemporary system of of investment. And of course, uh, they made some, at least one hedge fund lose a whole lot of money. So they were successful for some short period of time. Yes. So, you know, if it was a mania, it was a mania that was quite pointed and worked for, uh, at least in the short term. So if we were to um, 
think about it more as a calculated risk than a mania, then how does that change how we think about speculation and then even like the democratization of speculation? So that's a really good question. I think almost everyone can calculate risk. And this is something that has driven me crazy during this pandemic, <laughs> because this is something that all of us have had to do for the last 15 months now, I guess, mm-hmm. is, is calculate um, what our risks are. In the modern world, we, we're actually pretty good risk calculators. And so I'm pretty confident in regular people's abilities to do that. And so I am in favor of the increased access and democratization of speculation and the ability for more people to be able to speculate. And as you've seen, that continues to open up in more and more ways. So the Robinhood GameStop is just one example of it. The gambling in cryptocurrency is obviously looks dangerous in a million ways. But again, it's not as if this is new. I mean, as long as there has been money, People have been able to find a way to burn through it. (laughs) As long as there have been humans, there's been gambling. And as long as there have been gambling, people have been able to burn their money gambling. So that's not new. How do you think the 2008 recession um, relates to speculation in terms of like, how do you see Mm -hmm. maybe like the trajectory of speculation from 2008 recession to now? How has it changed and who is involved in speculation and how does that have an impact on the larger economy? So I think one of the conclusions that was drawn or one of the lessons that was drawn from the fallout of 2008 was the understanding that casino capitalism was the norm. I think a lot of people who were maybe clued into it prior to that got it. But I also recall even during the Bush presidency, there had been a push to say, no, average Americans are investors. Uh, The stock market is for everyone. Um, It's it's a more democratic space. Well, the real history there is uh, going back all the way prior to about 1917 or 1918, less than 1% of Americans owned stocks at all. It was a tiny exclusive space. Now, the number of players who set off this set of effects was probably not that much higher. It was probably, they probably numbered in the hundreds or in the thousands. Exactly. It, it was not millions upon millions of speculators who set off the, so, you know, if we're talking per capita or ratios, it would have taken millions and millions of speculators making all those gambles. But think about how the effects played out and how much more of a house of cards we had set up and how much more centralized the system was in order for it to have such global effects just because of something that happened largely on Wall Street, largely in New York City, largely concentrated among a set of brokerage houses and casino style plays on certain derivative assets tied to actual homes that were out there largely in America, right? And I think it did help people understand that there was a different structure to the system and that speculative gambles could have far, far reaching effects so far beyond their control, so far uh, inequitable to them um, that they really couldn't manage it. And so I think we're still living very much in response to that. The GameStop episode is probably still very much in response to that. The revolution in cryptocurrencies is probably 
some form of response to that to try to to circumvent or get around um, the centralization of all of that. And so that's kind of the the realization that that I think a lot of people have. I will say that if you if you go on the subreddits where all these people get together and think about you know why, which crypto currency to put money into or uh, which stock, you're very well read on. I this. spend a lot of time <laughs> looking at this stuff, but. The, you get like these really emotional posts from some people where they say, uh, when the 2008 crash happened, I was a kid and my family lost everything and like we had to start eating less or we had to like sell uh-huh. a house. Like they're, they're like very emotional posts and these people are like very aware of what happened or were very directly affected by what happened. And that plays some part in what they're doing now. You know, whether it's right. like driving them in the stick it to the rich way or if they see the potential in this, or you know, like how you want to think about it, uh, they're very aware of it. Right. I mean, there are certainly plenty of people as well who feel that their homeownership was somehow manipulated by predatory gambling practices by people they never met or never will meet who were trying to add an extra few million to millions that they already owned, which is you know, not really the way that the American dream of home ownership works. Right. But so. well, I, I also think, uh, and, and tell me what you think about this, like that people are always told this market is too complicated. Nobody can say what's right. going on. So it's better for these people not to invest, not to like dabble in these kinds of complicated things, you know, and only qualified people can do it. But I feel like once they do it, you know, once you download Robinhood and (laughs) once you look at the screen and you see that, okay, you do this, this and this, and then it works. How does that change how anyone with an iPhone thinks about speculation and investing money? It's just a different form of gamification. And so you look at the app on your phone and you say, well, if I'm good at this today, why would I not be good at it tomorrow? Or I had a success here with $15. Why would I not have a success if it were 30? The only question is what happens when downturns feel largely out of one's yeah. control. And, and and I think that's the thing that still feels like a large impediment and a large um, disappointment to a lot of small dollar investors is all you're doing is following a trend. There's not a lot you can really do. And you can hope that you're good and you're lucky, but the forces that control Apple's long-term health are so far beyond Hmm. you and me that there's not a lot to really credit yourself or beat yourself up over. Would you say the the internet has just made it easier to speculate on more kinds of things? Yes. <laughs> wow. So it used to be much harder to find valuations. There were always catalogs. There were always industry and professional trade magazines and services that went around valuing things in trade shows and collector shows and things like that. The The advent of the internet has just left so few stones unturned that it's hard to find. I mean, it's hard to just go around your, your apartment or your house and find anything that you could not pick up and put on eBay right now and sell for some price 
become an Amazon seller and just unload or Craigslist or whatever. Almost everything can be valued at this yeah. point. Again, what's the difference between being a seller and a trader and a speculator? It's just a matter of degree. Uh, I have a neighbor who someone was giving away a dresser for free that she just sold for $2,000. So I guess she's, she's a, speculator. a speculator. She's a good speculator. Right. But, you know, of course, was not at all intending to be one. Of course, never would consider herself one. But that's the way this works. And that's the way that uh, speculation is just constantly operating in a sort of pneumatic system among various forces of valuation. So on one hand, you're saying that more and more people are able to speculate than ever before. And... There's also another side where there's more financial precarity than ever before. And we're seeing that kind of clash during the pandemic where you have a lot of people who are staying at home, unemployed, um, have a lot of free time. And this is kind of like an easier way to get into speculation and cryptocurrency and, you know, hopefully see some larger returns in the future. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how if you have more and more people who are able to speculate and also have an incentive to speculate because in some ways money is like the only kind of real form of security that you can have. Does that create mm -hmm. kind of more of a everyone for themselves mentality? Like how, how do you think that shapes, you know, society or capitalism going forward? So it's funny. I still have, and maybe this is generational, I still have trouble wrapping my head around cryptocurrency as secure money. I grew up with cash and banks and the value of your money in the bank does not fluctuate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it is very hard for me to feel faith and security in cryptocurrencies. But I realize that um, not only do a lot of people now have plenty of faith in them, but in fact, see speculative promise. And I mean, speculative in both senses that we started with both futuristic, contemplative, and financial, as you were just saying. Um, so it's no accident at all, as you rightly noted, that they have taken off during this period where uh, people have been locked down and thinking very creatively and innovatively about money-making opportunities that are, shall we say, virtual, remote, um, touchless so that's that's part of it. I think the other part of it is understanding that we have grown up in the U.S. with a very, very stable dollar currency. I mean, the fluctuations in the dollar have just been dramatically minimal for our entire lives. And yet the majority of the world has seen currencies fluctuate up and down, and they're quite used to that. And it's a signal to us that we need to kind of think about how that operates and instead to say, well, what kind of possibilities and futures does, does that signal? So, um, I think that's a, that's a different attitude toward capitalism, as you were asking, than the kind of version of capitalism that we were, we were brought up with, which was go get a steady job go invest in some stocks and buy and hold them and retire on the dividends from them, uh, which was very much a capitalism is here for you. Think of it as regular and stable, and it'll provide you in the long run. And we've now had 
in a period of 13 years, two really severe strikes at that narrative. Yeah, I think it's really, it's really moved from, you know, what you were describing as the view of capitalism when you were growing up to now, right? I think back then, as you were saying, you kind of do some, you know, investing in like mutual funds or something, and then mm -hmm. the system kind of like takes care of itself and you get something back at the end. Whereas now it's like you are your own money manager, right? Like you make mm -hmm. the choice of whether you want to invest in Bitcoin and mm -hmm. that and now now it's up to you. Uh, it's kind of like people feel the need to do it themselves. That That's, yeah, that's exactly right. Just like with so many other things, right? Like I think modern life right. in general, everything is pushed on to uh, the person and it's not just they go right. work a job right. and derive the benefits of that. Right. No, that's, I think you're exactly right. The idea of buy and hold capitalism is probably going to be a pretty tough sell to under 30 Americans right now, I would say. Uh, you pile onto that the, you know, student debt crisis, the rising um, prices of homes pretty much everywhere. So, right, I think it's shifted. And, you know, I think to come back to where we were what we were addressing before, I think it's not really the case that you can get there without some gambling. Right. But also, some technologies have developed along the way that allow you to, to kind of take control of this and do it yourself. And maybe, you know what, maybe you can do it better. Uh, I think that's kind of the two, the two elements that have converged. And, you know, by the same token, it was never really that mysterious how to speculate. It was difficult to do it on Wall Street. It used to be you had to either go to Wall Street or have a telegraph or a telephone to reach someone on Wall Street. Now, if you've got an internet connection, you can get to Wall Street just as easily as someone who lives in Manhattan. Um, and the only difference is how many zeros you got in your bank account or your Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing is, these kinds of decisions, like it's, this is not like the only direction it can go in, right? It, it's mm -hmm. not like this is the best solution. We have made it so that anybody can go and buy Bitcoin and bet their fortunes on. That's just the right. direction, you know, it just happens to go towards because of like the system we live in. Mm -hmm. That's how it's resolving itself, but it doesn't have to be like that. Right. Yeah. I, I, saw, a, I saw something yesterday that the guy who took the picture of the cheese sandwich from Fire Festival yes. sold an NFT of the picture. Yes for $49,000 worth of Ethereum. And I thought, wow, that for is just... For his medical treatment. For his medical treatment, right? And I was like, that is just... That is wrapped up in so many levels of uh, immateriality and virtual exchange that is just so hard to yeah. unpack. But um, that touches as well on this idea that... I mean, think of how many layers removed that is from... The original point of that cheese sandwich, which mm -hmm. is like long gone, and thankfully Firefest mm -hmm. is long gone as well. Even the NFT is not a touchable thing. We've we've been talking about you know GameStop or even crypto and NFTs and stuff, but I think you know that's more of like twenty first century, but like very recent kind of developments. Mm -hmm. But I think before that, I would say the the big change was moving from like just regular speculation to like speculation with AI and algorithms, like automated mm -hmm. kinds of speculation. So can you talk about how that changed 
how speculation is done sure. and the risks uh, involved with it. You know, like how, how it helps and also how it might not be perfect. So one of the really amazing and strange arcs in the history of speculation is that it goes from its beginnings uh, in Aristotle and Boethius and some philosophers in antiquity of meaning one of the highest pursuits of human activity. Um, to contemplate is the most human thing you can do. To now, uh, exactly what you said, machine speculation. I don't want to say that's an entirely non-human thing because, of course, there are human inputs. Uh, humans are creating the machines. Humans are creating the programs. Humans are still certainly centrally involved. On the one hand, machine-driven and uh, especially AI-driven speculation can put some actual guardrails on speculation in that it can sort of weed out some of the wilder plays that humans might introduce. Machines are a little bit more predictable and a little bit less prone to crazy ideas than we are, for better or worse. On the other hand, you know, there's also this danger that, you know, the machines could just so fully routinize speculation that it loses a human element. It loses the ability for humans to enter that sphere and become actors in what we want to continue to think of as something that's a human created world. You know, we do want to hold on to that reserve of humans creating a human future and not a machine dictated future that's driven by predictive data. We all know that predictive data has inherent biases in it. There are great reasons why we don't want machines to dictate the shape of speculation when we've seen the iniquities that speculative capitalism has created all over the world. All right. Um... I wanted to talk about how speculation can be used going forward to yeah. help deal with uh, climate change. Can yes. you talk a little bit about like efforts that are going on to bring speculation into you know dealing with uh, managing like carbon prices and stuff like that? So that's a great question. So the bigger picture here is that speculation is one one of the major conceptual terms that it's bound up with now is mm -hmm. risk. That one of the major 20th century concepts that sociologists and anthropologists study is risk and risk society, and that the ways in which societies have differentiated themselves, especially over the 20th and 21st century, obviously along lines of ethnicity, gender, but also along the lines of risk. So where do you live? If you have money, you retreat from risk. You live in areas that have lower crime and you live away from toxic sludge. And if you don't have money, you're exposed to higher risk, to more violence or to more sewage waste or whatever it might be. Uh, and that applies to the third world as well. A lot of minoritarian thinkers, so thinkers who are interested in empowering minority communities and empowering minority mm -hmm. politics have tried to say, how can we turn speculative capitalism on its head and use the power of speculative thinking to empower minority groups rather than you know, speculative exploitation, yeah. right? So, um, and one of those ways is by addressing this, the ways in which risk has made minority populations yeah. vulnerable. One of the ways in which I think, uh, one of the places in which I think 
I've seen the most promise is in microcredit. Hmm. Uh, micro lending and microcredit practices are, once again, they're actually a speculative practice because you are making a gamble on lending to people who do not really have a lot of collateral. In some cases, no collateral. In an advanced capitalist society, that would be considered highly speculative because you just do not lend to people who don't have collateral. Yet, when you do it in developing societies, it shows time after time to work and it shows that there are ways that you can do it that are sustainable and that help empower oppressed communities, that help empower women, that help you know deliver education, that deliver um, healthcare to otherwise you know shut off communities, etc. And uh, and you can do this with elements, technological developments, whatever they might be, that can combat climate change. So you can do microcredit lending for green technologies. You can certainly see things like you know, carbon markets that could be speculative. Um, now, like, do we want to really turn that into yet another casino? <laughs> that feels a little bit dangerous, right? That's yes. something that I might want to say, let's keep that. Yeah, I would prefer it not to go that way either. But that, let's keep that pretty boring and standardized, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, don't, I don't want somebody hoarding all the carbon cap, whatever we're going to call them, whatever currency they exist in, and then turning them. No, that, that seems like there's a lot of downside potential yes. there. So I, I'd say just make those as plain and vanilla as possible. But certainly there's a market there. There's efficiencies there to be had. And uh, that's certainly an element, you know, that could work in symbiosis with technologies that we know we hmm. need to be rolling yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't like to do things unless... They're not going to get a lot of money for it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I would prefer yeah. I would prefer that yeah. uh, you know we deal with climate change in a very nice, straightforward way. But uh, like there's there's this people yeah. kind of waiting yeah, for exactly. these new technologies to come in to help speculate on carbon and uh, risk and uh, yeah, things like exactly. That. I, I, I was re recently uh, reading about this one person who started a company that uh, uses satellites to look at forests so when companies mm -hmm. want to invest in um, carbon offsets or uh, if they want to invest in just ca carbon uh, recapture projects and things like that the satellite will help map out which forests are growing faster which ones are growing slower so what's the best way to allocate these resources so it's kind of you're generating more information so that companies can make more oh, informed decisions about where that money is going interesting uh, so, so apparently they'll they'll work with like uh, the local people there to uh, grow the forest you know after measuring it once the company decides to invest in it you know it doesn't have to be the company it can be like the government but people need to know where sure. the resources should go to right um, so yeah that's like one example i saw recently um yeah sure. and i guess uh, the there's the last question which is about uh, who doesn't get to speculate and by that i am talking about you know, is there uh, people who are kind of just like left out of this whole thing, either because they don't have enough money in the first place or because they're like socially and politically excluded? Right. So one of the interesting things that I, I came across when I was researching my book was, you know, I would go back 
through historical databases of newspapers and magazines and books. And I would just search for the word speculation, see where it came up. And it would come up in references to immigrants to the new world. Mm. That was considered a speculation. Right. Now, because it was a gamble, it was a, it was a risk that they were taking. And so what kind of speculation was it? It was a speculation of life, I guess, or a speculation of just hopes and dreams. But also it came, it would come up in reference to say prostitutes. They were speculating on their bodies. This was in condemnations of them by say ministers or priests, but it was the same term. And so these were clearly people who were dispossessed, who were, you know, at the, the bottom of the social sphere. But those who had nothing, they would speculate with what they had, which was their bodies. So what this kind of helped give me a sense of was anyone who was destitute in any way whatsoever, if they were even forced to, can find ways to speculate. So, you know, what does that mean in our current moment? I mean, right, there are large swaths of the world who still don't have access even to Bitcoin or to penny stocks that seem like the most open and accessible and democratic platforms for speculation. And you could say that in some expanded form of thinking about speculation, the migrants who are at the border right now are speculators of some yes. type. They're contemplating and dreaming and thinking about a different future. I don't say that to romanticize the situation. Yes. It's a horrific situation in many ways. They're fleeing violence and they're facing violence, right? But they're also projecting a future in which they're trying to uh, create something different. So, right, I mean, I think this is partially just endemic to the human situation, that there's always going to be an outside, and that borderline of that is something that we should always be aware of when we think about what it means to yeah. speculate and think about how and why those borders get drawn. And whenever we say, you know, look at how open and free and accessible something like Robin Hood is we should still hold in the back of our minds yeah but mm -hmm. right and and that's that's a good healthy thing to do yes you know and to understand and and keep that in mind so i think that's a that's a healthy balance to try to maintain and uh you know it shouldn't it shouldn't be something that absolutely paralyzes us but it should be something that you know we we remain aware of as long as we're aware that speculative capitalism is the the default system of our, our current globe. Yeah, it seems to me from what you said that the more privileged you are, the more like abstractions you can use to speculate with. And the less privileged you are, then it becomes like very real in the sense that you have to speculate with your life or like your body. That's, that's yeah, that's a good way of putting it, right? I mean, you know, derivatives are hyper abstract. You know, there are several layers removed from whatever the material yeah. thing is. Whereas someone who has nothing is in no place to be thinking about hyper abstractions. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was really, really fun. And this is fascinating. Yeah. I, thank you. Thank you so much for all of your insight. Oh, uh, this is, I love talking with y'all. This is great. 